Wow. Well, I'm glad I came to church today. <laughs> One day, seems like it was an Easter Sunday. I'm pretty sure it was. I was talking to my dad back, way back in the day. And uh, we were getting ready for that morning worship service. If y'all don't know me or know my story too much, my dad was a pastor. and I had a chance to serve with him as one of the staff members at that church. And uh, he seemed particularly um, nervous and out of sorts that day. And so I asked him what the deal was. And he made a comment that has stuck with me. He says, you know, son, the, the devil comes to church on Easter. So if you're not the devil, just look around you and just do a quick survey of your immediate surroundings there. <laughs> We're glad you're here. No matter who you are or where you came from, we're glad you're here. Myth. According to the Merriam-Webster online dictionary, myth is a popular belief or a tradition that has grown up around something or someone. Again, a myth is a popular belief or a tradition that has grown up around something or someone. And we have... Uh, these kinds of myths, these constructs around which we build our lives, and sometimes they take on a life of their own. That's kind of what makes them a myth. There may or may not be truth tied to it, but the further you get from the event itself or the situation itself, the more likely it is that mythological stuff gets wrapped around it. Take, for instance, Easter. What are some of the myths that are tied to Easter? Yesterday, uh, what a great time it was at the Edinburgh Community Easter Egg Hunt. Did I say Edinburgh? Okay. Wow. I'm sure they had a good time too, except they don't do one of those Easter Egg Hunt things. Sorry, uh, Lumberton, I'm sure that's where I live for four years now. All right, let's just pray and go home. We'll just be done. That was one of our deacons. (laughs) And now they're going to vote for you to be king. uh... Wow. So yesterday, maybe in Edinburgh, but for sure in Lumberton, we had a community Easter egg hunt. And uh, I was so impressed with Crestwood and how we turned out to help celebrate that event and some of us taking kids or grandkids and others of us just out there working and uh, passing out cotton candy and all of the stuff that comes with it. It was a great event. I always love to watch our community as it gathers. Um, But it does beg the question for us in church on Easter Sunday as we talk about myths. Where did we get the idea that rabbits lay eggs? I'm not, really, I'm not really sure where that comes from, but I will tell you this, that if you'll do a Google search on the myths of Easter, there are a number of people there who would love to tell you where we got the idea that rabbits lay eggs that are colored and that somehow have some significance tied to Easter. Now, through the years, I've known and had dealings with Christian people who get all torqued and all bent out of shape because Christians shouldn't be celebrating 
with Easter eggs and bunnies and that kind of stuff. And I politely acknowledge their right to have an opinion and my right not to have to buy into their opinion. It's part of the myth of Easter. And in and of itself, we know that it's myth. We know that, first of all, eggs don't come from rabbits. And we also know that Easter bunnies and Easter eggs have little to do with the Easter message, unless you believe some of what you'll find on a Google search. But for the most part, we do it. And the reason we participated in that as part of the tradition of Easter in our family all through the years, including yesterday, our granddaughter was out there stealing eggs, I mean, gathering eggs, um, is because it's fun. It's okay. But you know, there are other people who are non-Christians. And when it comes to Easter time and we start talking about the stuff that we talk about as Christian people, by definition, if you are a Christian, and I'm not talking about the label, I'm talking about the truly born again child of God. If you are a Christian, then by definition, you buy into Easter, right? Everybody go like this. If you're Christian, you have to buy into Easter because the gospel message is centered upon Jesus Christ, the entire cross event. He took the sins of the world on himself. He was crucified because of God's love for us. Life comes only through him. And the cross event itself would just be another tragedy if it weren't for the resurrection. But there are those in this world who would say to us today, and you'll find their voices if you'll do a search on the myths of Easter, the myths of Easter, you will find that there are those people out there who think that we're just nuts because we believe that a guy could be resurrected from the dead. Today what I'd like to do is to focus our attention on a particular myth of Easter. And it is one of those that I'm afraid rings very close to home for us. See, the question for us really is not so much, was Jesus resurrected? We would say in unison, I hope at least, that we would say, yes, Jesus was in fact resurrected. My suspicion is that if you're here today, and obviously you are here today, then you buy into that, at least at some level. So I don't want us to spend a whole lot of time dealing with the question, did it happen? I want us to deal with the question of what difference does it make in everyday life? How does Easter change your life? On a day-to-day ongoing basis, once Easter celebration with its bunnies and its eggs and all of that stuff, when all of that's gone behind us, what difference does Easter make in your life? It's a good question. I think, matter of fact, it's the question of the hour. So here's the myth that I'm referring to as we work our way through this, okay? The myth of Easter for me is not so much is it real, the resurrection, and it's not so much about the Easter bunny and eggs and all that kind of stuff. The myth that we must deal with and that I think so many Christians get sucked into in the way we live our lives, here's the myth of Easter that says I can celebrate Easter without it making any demands on me. Now, that's heavy. Matter of fact, that's so heavy that it might be comfortable to just kind of sit back and go, I'm going to check out now. I'm going to take a nap. It'll be lunchtime when I wake up and we'll be good. But here's the deal. You can't do away with this truth no matter if you sleep through it or not. 
Easter and the truths of Easter make demands on us. And the fact is that so much of what we wrap around Easter in our religious terminology, even grounded in Scripture, hear me very carefully now, okay? If you're going to call me a heretic, at least quote me right. Even Scripture that we use to tack on to Easter can become mythological for us. The, the age-old Easter saying among church and Christian people is, he is risen. And the response is, he is risen indeed. Let me ask you, be very honest, what demands does that make on you? Just the statement becomes some of that bumper sticker theology that sounds great in church and it fills time in a sermon, uh, but the reality is that we can just throw that stuff out there and it doesn't make a lick of difference in our daily lives, except that it must make a difference in our daily lives. So we come to this myth, we come to this question of what do we do with Easter? Here's a truth to hang on to. If the Easter message is true, and it is, if the Easter message is true, then it reinforces the divinity of Jesus Christ. No other person in all of history either has nor will be resurrected from the grave to cover the sins of humanity. He is thoroughly divine. But when we come to grips with the divinity of Christ in this Easter moment, the fact that he could die shows us that he's a man, and yet the fact that he could rise from the dead, pay for our sin on the cross, that shows us that he's God. And those two things together force us to acknowledge our own humanity. If he's God, then I can't be. I don't like that truth. I'll just be real honest with you. I love to play God in my life. Don't you? Hello, don't you? Maybe that's a little too personal, okay? I, uh, we could go for the feel-good Easter sermon, but let's go ahead and get with this one. All right, 1 John chapter 2, the first two verses, here's what we find. 1 John, it's on the screen if you don't have a Bible with you there. 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, John writes to a church, a series of churches, a group of people that he has been discipling. He says, my dear little children, it is a very strong term of affection that he writes to these people. And he says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And I could continue reading. Well, let me just go ahead and read it, even though it's not on the slides. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. In other words, John is saying to them, this life that we call the Christian life has to be more than just lip service. I'll put it in context of today. It has to be more than an Easter celebration at church that you walk away from and everything's the same as it was before you went in by the time you walk out. John has some very interesting truth for us in these couple of verses. 
Let me give you three truths. The first one, let me just kind of set your mind at ease, okay? The first one is going to take us the longest to get through. The second one we'll handle very quickly. And the third one uh, we'll deal with before we go home. And I'll still get you out before 3 o'clock. Truth number one. From this passage, and it's the first part of verse 1. From this passage, here's the first truth. Jesus' resurrection provides you with the power to rise above sin in your daily life. Now, I like to pause when I make those kind of statements because those are the kind of statements that ought to make all of us pause. Jesus' resurrection provides you with the power to rise above sin in your everyday life. I remember a long time ago now, I was an undergraduate student at Wayland Baptist University. I'd grown up in the church. Uh, my dad had been a pastor for a while by that time, but I, there was a time in my life there that he hadn't been a pastor and then he was, and so I, I just grew up in church, bottom line. So I knew all the nice little church stories and all that stuff, and so God called me the ministry, and Brandon, uh, who's here with us today, was uh, three months old. Teresa and I had been married a couple years, and we were on the verge of divorce, and things were rough, and we just finally decided we better do what God had told us to do. And so I quit my job in the oil field of West Texas, and we moved to Plainview, Texas, and I started going to college, and I majored in Bible. What other things should you do, I thought. So I got there, and they were teaching me all of this stuff, and, and I had this, even though I'd grown up in a pastor's home where I should have known better, I had these grandiose ideas of what ministry would be like. And so I was going to school full-time and working a part-time job in this church, First Baptist Church of Halfway, uh, up close to Plainview, Texas, called me to be their music minister first. They saw that I wasn't going to do that very well, so they added youth to it later. And uh, I was in a Sunday school class of young adults, and our teacher was one of our deacons. And he was a younger deacon, about my age at the time, And I remember, like yesterday, sitting in that basement Sunday school class of that little panhandle church. uh, We had maybe 100 people who would come at any given time. And and we got into this discussion in Sunday school about whether it was possible for a Christian to live without sin. And my position was, yes, it, it has to be possible. Uh, or the commands that we have in Scripture, like be holy as I am holy, uh, and like this verse and some other ones, uh, would ring awfully hollow. And actually it puts the character of God on the line if he requires something of us that we can't do. Well, that's, that's at least how I was in those days. But it torqued our deacon. I mean, he was like, first of all, I was challenging what he was trying to teach to the class. And secondly, um, Neither one of us handled discussions very well in those days. And so we got into this big, long debate and discussion about is it possible for a Christian person to live above sin, without sin, in your life? We, we have this theological concept, this part of discipleship that we call sanctification, the, the process of becoming more like Christ, And so we got locked up on the question of is it possible to achieve that and we left beside the way the discussion of needing to attempt to that. Big difference. Is it possible for a Christian to live above sin? 
Look at verse 1. Again, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you don't sin as much as you used to. Is that what it says? All right. Just make sure you're listening. Okay, Make sure you're reading because what Scripture says is, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. Period. I, I think that we should probably stop and get make sure that we understand. John is not saying that we have the ability to be sinless as far as our sin nature. We're all born with a sin nature. It's why we need Easter. It's why we need a Savior who is born divine. That's why we have Christmas celebrations. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, Emmanuel, come to us, lives a perfect life, crucified on a cross to pay the debt of sin, which we'll get to again in just a little bit here. And all of those things come together. And the reality is what Jesus does for us, he saves us from our sin nature and the consequences that it brings, which is separation from a holy God. That's our sin nature. But when it comes to the living out of our faith, we are called to holiness and we're called to sanctification and becoming more like Christ, which now takes it off of the sin nature. That's been covered for us at the cross. And now we're dealing with those individual acts of sin that we carry in daily life. He uses a word here that means, it's it's translated correctly, sin, in your scripture there, but the, the idea behind it probably needs a little bit of a, of a discussion for us. And sometimes we know sin is it's missing the mark, you know, like a target and you miss it. And this, this one is a little bit different. This one's a little more active in the way we approach it because this word for sin here has the idea behind it that we stray from the path of righteousness. Let me use this as an example of what I'm talking about. We, I took a, used to take a bunch of kids backpacking way up into the mountains of New Mexico uh, and it was a great opportunity to do discipleship and, and just, you know, I just love going backpacking back in those days anyway. And so uh, we would take these kids up. And on one particular trip, we had taken a group of almost 30 teenagers and adults. And uh, so it caused us to have to spread out along the trail. So, you know, leave no trace kind of camping. And it's difficult to do with a group like that. And so before we left, we put an adult with every couple of kids and we laid down the law, okay, This is the way that you're to walk in on this trip. First of all, when you get on the trail from the time we leave our vehicles to the time we get back to our vehicles, you should have your whistle around your neck at all times. Now, you know why that's the case? Because when you get back in the woods, uh, you you can yell all you want. Nobody's going to hear you. You need something that cuts through the, uh, the noise of the forest. And so... Uh, Everybody always had to have their whistle around their neck. We also laid down this rule because it was a dry season there and bears uh, were very active in the backcountry. And so we had so many kids and we were worried about them having food and it being left over and bears wandering into camp and eating children and that kind of stuff. And so, well, certain children we were worried about. Um, And so... um, so we told them, don't cook anything that you won't eat. In other words, everything you cook, you eat. No burying food on this deal. Every time you cook something, you eat it all. And then the third one was, third path rule was, don't wander off alone. Okay? Always make sure that you're with somebody else unless it's one of those trips away from camp that you really need to do by yourself. And then you need to make sure that 
The adult in your group knows where you are at all times, and you check in when you get back. Those were the three rules to stay in the path of righteousness for what we're talking about. And so we're up there, and the middle day that we're gone, somebody walks up to me, and I'm at a campsite with a couple of other people, and they say, hey, have you seen Kelly? Kelly was one of the male sponsors that we had. He's used to being in the back country, done a lot of elk hunting and that kind of stuff back there. And, and all of us said no. And so we started checking it out. And we realized that the people who were asking us if we'd seen him were his two teenagers who were at his campsite. Uh, and it had been about three hours since any of us had seen him. And so we started looking for him. We couldn't find him anywhere. And after a number of hours, and I was beginning to really panic, like we, we got a, a real situation nine miles back into the wilderness. Here comes Kelly coming uphill, and he is about as frightened looking as anybody I've ever seen. And he's carrying with him his mess kit and a small shovel, a trowel. The mess kit looks like it had gone through a nuclear blast. And so after we got over the initial, man, where, what's going on? you okay? Then we got to the, where were you, man? You, got, you know. So now we're upset with him, and he starts telling us his story. Right, listen for the sin here, the wandering from the path of righteousness. He says, I was cooking for us at our campsite, and the kids at our campsite decided they didn't want to eat. And so I had this food, and I ate all I could, and I just couldn't eat another bite. And so I decided that I would go bury it outside of our campsite. Okay, strike one. Right, you with me on the rules? Okay, strike one. And so he said, I went away to do that, and the kids were already gone, so I didn't have anybody to tell. So I thought, I'll just go off about 100 yards away from our campsite, and I'll bury this, and then I'll come right back in. Strike two. Nobody knew where he was going. And then he said, I got out there, and I buried it, and after I got up from burying it, I turned around, and I looked, and he said, every tree looked like it was exactly the same tree. And he said, immediately, I knew that I had no clue which way I had come from to get there. And he said, so I reached down to grab my whistle. Strike three. He had left his whistle in the camp. And he could hear us in our campsites up and down, but he couldn't figure out where we were and which direction it was coming from. So he took that trowel and he took that biscuit and he said, I just started beating that thing, thinking I'd make enough noise for somebody to hear me and come get me. Finally, he said, I just started walking. Okay, now that's strike four if you're keeping record at home. Kelly wandered away from the path of righteousness for that trip. How often is that true of us in our lives? How many times do we work our way through a given day knowing full well the righteousness that God calls us to, and yet we make choices to step out of that path. John says, I'm writing to you so that you don't do that. So back to the question, is it possible for a Christian to live above sin in our daily lives? If you say, no, it's not, let me ask you a question my dad Ask me one time, which sin is it that you have to commit? 
If you say you can't live a holy life like that, then which sin is it that you are forced to commit on a daily basis? And the answer is we don't have to commit any sin. We choose to sin. And John says, I'm writing so that you won't do that. How do we pull that off? How do we get to the point of, of living above sin? The myth of Easter, the one that says, I'll just go celebrate it or I'll celebrate it wherever I happen to be, but then it makes no demands on me. The myth of Easter says that you're doomed to a life of sin. If all that you have or we have from Easter is a nice little set of music and a nice little set of bumper sticker sayings, then we're sunk when it comes to overcoming sin in our daily life. That's the myth and what comes with it. It also means that we're at the mercy of our circumstances. Not a one of us in here faces something in our life, but that we would love to change it if we could. As a matter of fact, many of us spend a lot of time, money, and energy trying to change the circumstances of our life because we don't like them. But we also know that there are circumstances that we face that are bigger than us and bigger than our circle of contacts. And they drive us to the foot of a holy God. But if the myth of Easter is true and we don't really have much to bank on there, then we're at the mercy of our circumstances. Here's good news for us. The greatness of Jesus is not limited to one or two days a year. And Easter reminds us of that. Now, the myth of Easter doesn't. We lose it with that. The truth of Easter says that the resurrection power did not stop at the mouth of that tomb. When Jesus walked out, that power was not left behind. He carries it with him forward. And the love that pushed him to the cross did not stop with his last breath. So again, the truth of Easter is that you don't have to sin. But the second truth is that you're probably not going to pull that off. As much as I would love to say, just be above sin, make the choices and everything's going to be cool, the reality is you're probably not going to make it. I know I'm running out of time, so let me say this very quickly. John knows it too. And John builds it into this for us. Notice what he says, the second part of verse 1. But if anyone does sin, let me stop there and just say it this way, and then I'm going to move along very quickly. There is a, a grammatical tool that John uses here. It's a conditional sentence that he writes for us that's based on probability. In other words, we could very accurately translate this as, let me get back to verse 1, the first part, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but since you're going to sin is the thrust of what he says. Actually, that's good news for me and for you because it's good to know that God is a realist. And he doesn't hold a standard up here for us that we could never get to. Well, actually, I could go to great lengths to say he does hold us to a standard. And we go all the way back in the Old Testament and we can trace the giving of the law and the covenant of the people of Israel. And God saying to them, you are my people and I'm your God. Live to these standards. And then Paul would say to us in the New Testament, but those things were pointers for us. And, and directing us to the reality that we cannot pull it off. That's good news. Well, it's only good news if Easter is real. That is a right, okay? Barbara got it right. That's good news. 
Because if Easter is not real and Jesus died and stayed dead, we're sunk. Look what he says. Here's the third truth. When you don't make it and you can't live to that standard of no sin, Jesus is there to pull you through. Notice what he does here. He stacks up these titles of Jesus or descriptions of who Jesus is. I'm writing these things to you so that you won't sin. But since you're going to sin, he says, here's the truth for you. We have an advocate, that's one, with the Father, Jesus Christ, that's two. The righteous, that's three. He is the propitiation, that's four. Four different things that John says here that drives us to get rid of the myth of Easter and live in the truth of Easter. He is the righteous. See that in verse 1? Remember that I said about the path of righteousness and sin is wandering off of that? Here's a good piece of information for you. Jesus doesn't just know the road of righteousness. He built it. And so for him to be our advocate in the midst of that is good news. We don't have to hope that he might know what he's talking about. We live in him and in the power of the resurrection and it keeps us in the channel of God's grace. He also refers to him as Christ. You do know, right, that Jesus Christ, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a title. It's Messiah that taps into a rich history and tradition and theological truth that comes from the Old Testament through God's chosen people, Israel, as he moves them forward. And when John uses this term as that Jewish fisherman that he was, he ties into a nationalistic hope of a people. This is God's anointed one who comes to deliver us. This is a rich term. So John says, I'm writing so that you won't sin. You're not going to make it. So here's something to hang on to. When you don't make it, don't forget that you have Messiah himself. Well, what's he doing? Here's the third term. He is the advocate. (laughs) He is the one who is called alongside. It's the exact same word that Jesus uses about the Holy Spirit who's going to come later. John now, that's back in John 13, 14 thereabouts. And now John uses that to refer to Jesus himself. He is your called alongside one. But it has a legal reference to it. There's that terminology of the courtroom. And Jesus is the one who steps into the mix for you to plead your case to the judge who is the father. When our other son, not Brandon but Colin, was assaulted in high school and nearly beaten to death, we found ourselves suddenly thrust into a world we knew nothing of, the legal world. And I discovered immediately that the terminology was different, the rules and the standards were just different. And the school district asked us if we wanted to press charges on the young man who attacked him. And we said, absolutely we do. A, a day later, the district attorney's office contacted us and said, regardless of what the school district wants to do, we are picking this up as a felony assault on this young man because of some of his history. And so we now are being assigned into one of the district attorney office attorneys. I'm sitting there listening to this guy, and I'm still just 
oh, just dealing with the emotions of what had happened. And, and I realized I was in, a, in an area I knew nothing about. In the midst of that, a member of our church who was an attorney pulled me aside one day. And he said, uh, I, I know what's happened. And he said, I want to offer my services to you. Now, I knew that this man was a Harvard-educated attorney. He was not, I'll just say it this way. I was thinking to myself, Lord, have mercy. I don't have enough money to pay this man to help us out. (laughs) He must have read it on my face because he said, I'm going to do this for you because you're my pastor. And I know that this is a world that you know nothing about. And he said, this is my world. And I'm going to walk with you through this. That's the picture of the word advocate. So when you blow it in your Christian life, John says that Jesus steps in in your stead. And he argues your cleanness in front of a holy God. But it's not because you're clean. It's because he's clean. So let me just ask you. I'm going to just kind of cut through. The propitiation, you see that on there? How many of you used the word propitiation in a sentence this week? (laughs) NIV probably gets this best for us as far as how to say it. He's the atoning sacrifice. It's what I just said. It's because of his cleanness that he can argue for you. So let me close with this question. Where would you be if Jesus stayed dead on Easter? We're called to live lives of holiness, and we can't pull it off in our own stead. But we have one who is a paraclete, an advocate, an elasmos, who stands at the right hand of a holy God and he says, they're mine. The cross event is ground zero for the epidemic of divine love on earth. And on this day and in this time of year, we celebrate a risen Savior. It's more than just a good feeling kind of piece of news. It's eternal truth that gives us the power to live every day, not just Easter day. And so as we come to the tail end of this, let me just give you a verse or two that we find in chapter one because all of us fall victim of this. I, I've sinned, I can't, you know, preach, I don't, I, I don't know what to do with this. Listen to what John says, verse eight, chapter one. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Bow your heads with me, if you will. Here's the invitation today. If you're carrying around a load of sin, let me just tell you with all the love that I can muster, you don't have to do that. Jesus died on a cross to give you life and forgiveness. He rose from the dead and purchased that life for us for all eternity.
And even today, he stands at the right hand of God on your behalf. And he says, you are my children, my family. And I am here to carry you through life. If you don't know him, why not? Why not give him a try? And if you do know him, are you living like it? Are you living like the power of Easter is real every day? Or is it just an occasional thing that you go back to? Father, we give you this time so that you might be glorified in our lives, change lives, even now. In Jesus' name.